your first employees are very, very valuable for your direction, for your culture, for everything, because, you know, they're going to leave their mark on, on your company. And you want people that need a meaningful job in their life. We told them mm -hmm. that this is a very, very early startup and maybe you have to work very late hours, but you're going to learn a ton and you're going to build something great, you know, and you're going to make a difference. Welcome to another episode of The Secret Sauce by Foodac, a global community of food entrepreneurs and innovators. I'm your host, Armin Anatar. And today, how an idea born at a startup weekend turned into a virtual restaurant brand and with 100 locations across 70 cities. All right, Mohammed, thank you again for joining us on The Secret Sauce podcast. Mohammed, you're the co-founder of Eat Clever, a virtual restaurant brand focused on delivering healthy food, which you co-founded with two of your close friends. We met back in November 2019 at the Foodac Summit. Back then, you mentioned to me that your uncle, who owned a restaurant in Syria, was one of your earliest inspirations to get into entrepreneurship. What about his work was it that inspired you? Yeah, that's absolutely true. So my mom is from Syria. And when we were younger and still in school, we visited almost every year. And my uncle was running uh, some of the biggest restaurants in the country. And when I was just uh, at my grandparents' house, I heard how my family, my aunt and my uncle and my grandma talked about him uh, when he was not there. And for me, there was like an aha moment and a, and a light bulb went on. This is how I want my family uh, to talk about me later on. So yeah, without really noticing, he became my first role model. And it helped me a lot because I changed my course and I started studying and uh, yeah. You didn't actually grow up in Syria, right? You grew up in a small village in Northern Germany. What brought your family there and what was life like growing up in that small German village? Yeah, very typical for Germany. I'm like the second generation refugee. So my mom and my dad refuged to Germany in the 80s. Mm -hmm. And for me, I honestly felt like an alien growing up most of the time because I grew up in a very, very small village. It was a beautiful countryside. But whenever I went out, you know, play or went to school, the general view was always that I looked different. I spoke mm -hmm. different. My name was different. Almost everyone was native and had German roots. So, yeah, it was quite alienating um, growing up there. And I always felt like I had to prove myself. I think a lot of people can relate to that who um, had the same background. And my parents, it was a bit difficult because, of course, they struggled. You know, it was not easy for them to support us in school or support us with, with our hobbies or anything else. What were your parents doing? Were they doing something entrepreneurial as well? Or what was their profession? Yeah, well, uh, they actually did the exact opposite. I think in some way, my dad uh, was a role model or was for me like an anti-role model. Uh, <clears throat> I hope he's not going to be mad with me <laughs> saying this. But my dad, you know, he tried some things out. I mean, he grew up in civil war, so he didn't really have any academic education or anything. And he ended up as a car dealer. And at that point of time in Germany, you could make a ton of money because in the 90s, uh, the borders opened up, you know, Germany got reunited. It was like uh, kind of a golden time. 
But my dad, he was so risk averse and uh, he never took any risks. He was really scared, you know, to lose everything. And for me, I really learned from that, that if you want to win in life, if you want to achieve your goals and build something extraordinary, you have to take risks, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, so, yeah, from that point of view, he also taught me a lot. Mm -hmm. Now I can relate. What would you say then, if it wasn't from your parents, what was the earliest experience you had of entrepreneurship? You know, a lot of kids have lemonade stands. Was there something that you did in, in your local village that was the lemonade stand of that time? Yeah, uh, great question. So, I mean, I can't remember how old I was, to be honest. I started super early because my, my parents, you know, they always taught us to stand our, on our own feet, to take over responsibilities and, you know, to try out um, stuff. And there wasn't much to do, you know, in a small village. It got boring quite fast. So uh, when I found out that, you know, every small village in Germany has a hunter and what they need for the wild animals they hunt, you know, the, I think there are some wild pigs and uh, their prey, um, they need nuts. And these nuts were growing in the village, but the best place to collect the nuts was on a farm that was owned by some guy. I, I don't remember who he was. And when I was like, I think 12 or, or something around that age, I was getting on his property and sneaking around and collecting the nuts, you know, as fast as I could. And for every bag uh, the hunter gave us, I mean, we were on, only kids did it because it's, it was such a bad business to be in. Um, I remember he gave us three euro per bag and it took us definitely more than an hour to collect them. So that was like one of my first entrepreneurial uh, experiences working for my myself. And also, I think uh, in retrospective, it took away a lot of comfort zone because sometimes mm -hmm. the owner of the property caught us. You know, even though, I mean, he didn't call the police or anything, he didn't use the nuts anyway, you know, <laughs> just uh, rottening there. But yeah, he was still yelling at us. And yeah, we were kind of ashamed, but we didn't stop. I mean, <laughs> we yeah. did it anyway. Yeah. For a while, you were also working on your dad and the car sales, knocking on doors. What was that experience like just going around the neighborhood uh, trying to sell cars? And, and did you manage to sell any? Yeah. So, you know, from time to time back then there was no internet, so no one was selling cars online and they needed a way to sell their cars. And usually they just, I don't know, put up like a piece of paper or a sign, you know, this car is for sale anywhere. And whenever I saw one of these cars on the driveway of the houses, I just walked up to the door and knocked on the door and asked them, hey, is this car for sale? And usually they were stunned because, you know, I was still a kid. But then when they found out that I'm serious, you know, and I'm just asking for my dad, for example, or I'm asking for a friend of my dad, you know, there were some other guys because I didn't have any cash to invest. And I was kind of working on commission, you can say. Yeah. And then they talked with me about it. And in the beginning, it really was uncomfortable, you know, walking up to, to strangers, knocking on the door. And it's really only in your head. So mm. again, this experience really helped me, you know, to develop kind of uh, strengths to, and persistence. Whenever you hear no, 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 you, you still have to go on and go on. Because usually whenever someone, you know, sold the car to me, it was super profitable. I mean, I'm, I was still a kid, but mm -hmm. compared to selling nuts, it was a great business. Yeah. 
Just as usually, yeah, definitely. So, yeah, this helped me, and that was also something I did when I when mm-hmm. I grew up. I mean, you just hustle, you know. It's really without knowing it, it's learning how to hustle, learning how to mm-hmm. do things. Probably you can relate. I've always advocated for cold outreach, cold sales, you know, knocking on doors to be the earliest part. I feel a lot of successful entrepreneurs today have that background from the, the early days. And I think it's a great skill that most likely helped you as well in the future with Eat Clever when you started eventually cold calling restaurants. Definitely. Um, when did you decide that you wanted to move away from that German village and move to it? It's Berlin, right? What was the idea that, that sparked you to, to move? Yeah, so as you said a little earlier, my parents also wanted me a very safe uh, career they can be proud of. And and that was for them being an engineer, a doctor or lawyer. Very Mm -hmm. cliche and typical. And because I had no real idea and passion, I just did what my parents wanted me to do. And I enrolled in the university for electrical engineering. But I already started working on, you know, some ideas and I wanted to do something when I was still in school because I think when I was like two years before graduating school, I read the book Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill, yeah, the classic. And I was like, well, I, I don't want to go to school anymore. I just want, <laughs> you know, to put what he preached, put it to practice and do something. And yeah, so in two weeks in university, I learned about a hackathon happening uh, the weekend after. And I just went there, met some really cool people, met some guys that were just got their first funding and moved to Berlin. And on the Monday after the weekend, I knew I want to build a startup company. It was the first time I heard about startups. You know, it was back in 2012. It was not that popular and known in Germany. There was no real scene except in Berlin. Yeah. And then I just called them up and I told them, hey, you guys moved to Berlin. Uh, can I move in with you and help you with your company? And they were just, okay. And yeah. I packed my stuff, dropped out of uh, university and took a train to Berlin on Monday morning. Like the most important thing for me was to be on time on Monday morning. And we were supposed to meet at nine. And when I arrived at the office, I was the first one there. (laughs) That was was like the first shock for me. And, you know, okay, this thing is going to go so differently. And then because I also asked them if I can, you know, move in with them. Mm-hmm. and crush it their place for like as long as I'm staying in Berlin and helping them doing kind of an entrepreneur and residence internship. I still remember when we went home after working, uh, after the workday, I told them, yeah, where am, am I going to sleep? <laughs> and there was no room. Like there was no free room where I could uh, crash. And they were like, yeah, right. And we just put the mattress, a very small mattress on the floor in the corridor, you know. And then I, I just slept like the mattress was all I had. And there was this mm-hmm. for half a year and we worked 24-7. You know, whenever we went to the office, when I think back, I understand why they were so happy with me as an intern. Because, I mean, they paid me 450 euro per month. There was mm-hmm. no minimum wage at that time. But I never, ever went home before they finished their workday. You know, that was like the first rule for me. I would never go before my boss goes home. I don't know why, but it was like, I really felt it. I wanted to mm-hmm. learn everything. I wanted to help them. 
I wanted to do my best and I felt there's no way I'm going to go home at 6 p.m. or something. Absolutely. Yeah. So that was like my time or my move to Berlin and I learned a ton. It was so incredibly valuable, especially when you found a company afterwards, because you really need to understand the viewpoint of the employee Mm -hmm. and the first couple of employees. And if you've never been in that position, it's really tough, you know, because in the early years when you are kind of uh, unexperienced, because, I mean, we kind of jumped right into it, right out of university, you know, and this six months being close to the founders, living with them, helped me so much to understand, you know, how I felt and to have some understanding for our first employees. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, your story is so similar to mine in, in sense that I dropped out of university uh, to go work with a friend. Our accommodation was actually just above the office. And we had air mattresses to start with. And then eventually when they deflated, we just switched to uh, duvets on the ground. But uh, yeah, I get you in that experience that you you see how someone's running a company and how it's growing. And it gives you that experience and sort of that sensitivity to when you do employ your own people and, and what they might see in the perspective of an employee. So what I'm confused by this time is, is what was the reaction from your parents when you decided to drop out of university, when you finally said, hey, I'm going to leave and join this startup in Berlin? What did they think? Oh, they were super worried. It was mm-hmm. so tough for them. And they gave me a hard time because, uh, you know, I always worked, you know, as long as I can remember. And I always made some money and I always had some money to spend. My parents wanted to support me, you know, as much as I can. They are not like wealthy or anything, you know, not even middle class. But I mean, they tried their best, you know. And when I enrolled in university, I actually needed their financial support. But as soon as I dropped out and moved to Berlin, it was over. They mm. they didn't give me a penny, you know, and they were so worried because they didn't understand. Is it a hobby? Why am I not making money out of my job? You know, why am I getting paid so little? They don't understand that you work to learn and you don't work to make a living, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when did the idea for eClever, because at the time you were not working on eClever, yeah. when did the idea then start for eClever? So at this hackathon where I decided to, to drop out, I actually met my co-founders to be, you know, Robin and Marco. We met there. Uh, we really got along really, really well. And we stayed in touch and we worked on some ideas, you know, remotely. We were, Robin was still in university. Marco was working full time as a global process engineer. And I was in Berlin, but we are staying in touch, you know, working on this idea. And what we worked on was that we had this idea, people, for example, moving into a new city and they are in love with, for example, falafel. And they wanted to find out in which restaurant I can find the perfect falafel. They don't want to look for the rating for a whole restaurant, only for falafel, this dish. And what we did is we set up a website where you can search for dishes and you can see the ratings of different restaurants and order them. So it was kind of a blend of Yelp and Delivery Hero, you can say. So to get the content for the website, uh, we spent a lot of time in these restaurants that worked with us, you know, mostly Robin, my co-founder. And what he saw is that these people, they have uh, usually takeaway restaurants and also normal restaurants have peak times and off peak times, you know, 
probably a lot of listeners in the industry can relate to that and know about this this issue of the industry that, for example, takeaway was usually very, very busy on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Sunday the most. And usually it was only pizza. Like in Germany, 80% was pizza. I know in mm-hmm. other countries it's different, but, but in Germany it was mostly pizza. So what we found out is that there are four days that are unprofitable for the restaurants from Monday to Thursday. And usually on lunchtime, basically it was dead. The people were sitting around, they did all the preparation, you know, the chef, and he was just sitting in the kitchen playing with his phone. That was like insane for us because you have all these fixed costs, you know, like rent, electricity, etc. But your stuff has nothing to do. There's no revenue. There's no turnover. So we came up with the idea, hey, people don't want to eat pizza through their lunch uh, when they're in the office, when they're busy, whatever, when they need some brain food. How about we create a healthy brand, healthy dishes, you know, where you can see very transparent the nutrition, exactly what you need for your lunch break. Okay. So that was like the basic idea. And we thought this is perfect substitute for the restaurants whenever they have free capacities, they can just sell our meals, you know, mm-hmm. usually during the day. So this is how it started. It was kind of crazy. A lot of people looked at us and said, what the fuck is this? We had no real name for it. There was no category. A lot of people doubted us. They told us, open up a normal restaurant, you know. But actually, back then, turned out we kind of invented and created the virtual restaurant category. And now, as we all know, it's very popular all over the world because, of course, the uh, benefits of it. This is how we came up with the idea because it was simply a pivot. And that's the beauty about uh, building companies that some of the best companies got built because, you know, you, you were on something else and then you just found out, hey, there's a problem, a bigger problem, a more urgent problem we can solve. Yeah. And that's so, basically what we did. So essentially the timeline was there was this startup weekend that you guys first met at. You had this MVP idea. You were sort of testing it, but whilst everyone else was doing their own thing, and keeping in contact during this whole duration of time, everyone learning their own skills and, and different things uh, along the way. And then at some point, you guys have decided, okay, there's this pivot that we need to do. At what point did you decide, all of you guys, to, to commit fully to it and focus primarily on eClever? It was actually, you know, when we just launched an MVP uh, of Eat Clever, you know, seeing if there's some need in the market for a healthy food delivery because there was basically no one doing it. Advertising healthy, you know, this is a this is a healthy brand and takeaway. And that was like 2014. So I was still in Berlin and then we were just testing on some Facebook ads and we saw that a lot of people needed this. They were kind of waiting for it. We got such a great feedback not from the product because, you know, our product was still developing. And uh, of course, a lot of things went wrong in the early days, but, but just from the message, you know, from the branding, from the idea, we got awesome feedback. And then we thought, okay, this is something we have to jump on now. And then we try to figure out how, and again, you just have to hustle. And it really helped us that we bootstrapped because it also means that you don't give away too much uh, equity in the early days and you can validate your idea first. Robin and I jumped in first in full time because both of us were not making a lot of money. And 
we all three decided that Marco should continue working full time because he supported the whole thing financially, you know, mm -hmm. because he was the only one with a career. He was the only one with a solid income that could uh, support it. So that's how we bootstrapped for the first year. And yeah, we just had to get creative uh, on getting the first couple of customers. And how did you get those first customers? Was it cold calling? Was it knocking on the restaurant doors? So on the restaurant side, it was really, really a tough sale. So we had to sell them on the dream. This may sound a little weird to some people, but you really have to sell the dream because you have no track record. There's no trust. Mm. You really have to be patient with them. You have to be creative. So what we did is, for example, when they didn't trust us, when in the beginning there was only one, two, three orders coming in a day, we actually offered our own labor. You know, so so we went there, we helped them with the cooking, we helped them with actually we actually delivered the meals ourselves, we mixed the spices ourselves, just to keep on going, just to make the restaurants see that we are serious about this, that we are not gonna leave them hanging, that we're gonna grow this. And it really doesn't matter if the business model works or not in the early days, you know, on the economics side. Of course, it was way too expensive that we did it ourselves and it had to change. But we know what our goal was in the beginning. And our goal was to see, okay, if we scale this, is this a solid working business model? You know, no matter that we have to uh, get our hands dirty in the, in the early days and in the beginning. And that really worked. And a lot of restaurant owners appreciated it because, mm -hmm. you know, you probably don't see a lot of people coming in and, you know, just getting the things done that, that have to be done. So, yeah. so that's how we got creative on the restaurant side. And then, of course, we thought, hey, we don't have any money. We don't have any marketing budget. How can we get creative on the end consumer side? How can we reach end consumers? That was also like a big topic for, for us. Yeah. So, I mean, on the restaurant side, it's truly do things that don't scale, but building up that uh, relationship with the restaurants that I think is essential to the, to the e-clever business model. And when it came to the consumers, so getting the consumers onto the platform, what were the different acquisition channels you were using? Because I, I think I heard that you guys were using uh, Tinder as well to, to acquire people. Yeah, that's correct. So um, what we did is, I mean, we were sitting in, in the dorm room, very, very typical with a whiteboard. And we were like, we were only active in Hamburg. Uh, we were like, okay, we have no marketing budget. We have some time. And we have a great message. We need to reach some people. We need to reach them hyper-locally because of our limited delivery area, of course. And of course, we need to find a channel to reach our target group, you know, our customers, potential customers. And Tinder was just getting popular in Germany, you know. And we were like, okay, this can actually work because they were very new to the market. Of course, they had a, already a relevant customer base in the bigger cities. But there was no advertising plan or anything. So what we did is we thought, okay, this is perfect. This is for free. The people we want to reach are on the platform. And this is hyper-locally. We just set the location, you know, and and, and adjust the uh, distance. So we set up a male and female profile, so two different profiles. And, and then just a catchy slogan and then the pictures of our food. And then we told them, hey... This is clever. This is new. This is a healthy delivery service in Hamburg. And it was insane. 
I mean, it's even hard to describe. For us, it looked like it's fake because we were just, of course, swiping right. And almost everyone we swiped right with, you know, matched us. And the people were like, oh, this is so funny. They didn't feel that it's advertising at all. That was so cool. The really cool thing was that as soon as we matched them and swiped right, we actually had a direct channel to communicate. So we could exchange messages, you know, we could answer some questions. Mm -hmm. It was actually something we didn't thought about. We, we just wanted to get some, you know, a reach and just uh, get uh, the word out. But, but then we started chatting with them. And when you are that small, we really felt the, the impact. You know, yeah. the next couple of days, the, the order started growing. And that was like super cool. That was one example of how you have to get creative <laughs> when you don't have money and when you bootstrap and then it teaches you a lot. What were some of the questions? So I imagine I'm yeah. on Tinder, I swipe right and there's a picture of falafel or, or whatever. Then, then what, it, didn't people start out with jokes or, or did you guys kick off the conversation? And what typically ensued after that? So at first, I think we were a little confused. We were like stunned that we had so, so many people swipe right. We weren't really prepared for this. You know, there was not like a user journey or anything. Okay, this happens when, and then we were sitting in front of the computer because, you know, we used a desktop version. I think the first couple of matches, they started the conversation because we, we didn't really know what to say, to be honest. <laughs> But usually it was some, you know, some people were like, hey, this is super cool. I'm definitely going to try it. Uh, how did you came up with the idea? Some people got it. You know, some people told us, wow, this is such a great marketing idea. You know, mm -hmm. you're doing a great job marketing. Uh, the pictures look mouth-watering and just complimenting us. And some had some questions, you know, uh, where can I order? When can I order? When did you start it? Very typical questions. This is so cool. Can I order this? Are this is this real food? With some, it was kind of just customer support, you know, mm -hmm. uh, answering some of the, the usual questions uh, you get. Yeah, that was basically it. But we were really, really surprised by, by the results. Yeah. So at this point, it's what, 2015, 2016, still with three of you guys in yeah. Hamburg? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I can walk you through the timeline. And actually, it was like end of 2014. We are still in a co-working space, only the three of us no funding, you know, bootstrapped. And then early 2015, we were bootstrapping for roughly a year. And of course, our orders grew, but very, very, very slowly, you know. And, and when you have just, I don't know, 15, 20 customers a day, when you send them like a questionnaire or, you know, a newsletter, the response rate is so small. It's not really something you can rely on, you know. Mm -hmm. So what we did and decided is was... Okay, how do we get more feedback? Because usually this product should grow faster because of word of mouth, for example. So what we did is, and this where my backstory probably as a kid hustling really helped was, I sat down every night and called up every customer we had. <laughs> like just calling them, asking them, hey, how was your food? How was the order? And I was actually scared to do it. It was very uncomfortable because I knew that there are still a lot of things going wrong. It's kind of calling up the person that was unhappy with your service. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can imagine uh, how, how, how uncomfortable that was. 
But we did it anyway. And it was super helpful. And a lot of people, of course, were surprised that where they ordered the, their lunch, for example, or dinner, uh, that there's someone calling them afterwards and asking if everything was fine and if they were happy and satisfied. It was very unusual, of course. Because as you said, we did things that don't scale. You can't do it at a, at a, at a large scale. But it turned out to be super, super valuable because one day I called up Tarek, Tarek Müller, who is the CEO of About You, which is now one of the, I think, fastest growing and biggest e-commerce companies in Europe, at least, yeah. and a unicorn. And he was well known back then already, you know, in the, in the scene. And I knew he, who he was, but I just called him, you know, like he was a normal customer. And I remember that was super late. And he was still in working in his office and we started chatting for a little longer. At one point, he asked me if I, I'm the founder, if I'm one of the founders. And I said, yes. And he was like, yeah, blah, blah. And we were just chatting and asked some, at some point he asked me, are you guys looking for funding? And I was like, yeah, we actually are. And then I tried to convince him, you know, to meet with us. But he was still, you know, a little distant, suspicious, Because Who is this guy calling yeah, me in the middle of the night about my falafel order? Exactly. And now he wants my money and stuff. <laughs> But he said, I'm going to, you know, think about it. And we didn't hear from him for three months. And of course, I was a little down, you know, I expected an answer very fast. And, and you already paint the picture of finally getting funded, finally taking this next challenge and getting on the next level of being an entrepreneur. And then I still remember the, the exact scene and moment. I was in Hanover, the first city where we expanded, in the kitchen, wearing a chef's coat, being in the kitchen, teaching the staff how to cook and prepare our meals. And then I got an email from him. And the email simply said, hey, are you still looking for money? Let's meet. I just packed my stuff took a bus from Hanover to Hamburg because I couldn't uh, afford a train and then directly off to his uh, office and we met there. It was super late. There was no one else. Just me, my co-founders and his friend who ended up investing as well. So we had a talk, a very long meeting. It was so cool. Like they had the same vision and everything. And then everything happened super fast. That was insane. I think like this is exactly what everyone wants. You know, every entrepreneur dreams of basically because we were really struggling, you know, financially as well for a couple of years. I mean, I dropped out in 2012 and didn't make any money until Yeah, 2015, we were still working on our dreams. And yeah, actually this cold calling ended up getting us the investment because later on he, of course, told us that he was impressed by our groundwork and that we called up every customer. Yeah. So advice to startups, do cold calling, follow up on your customers, get feedback and, and chase up leads. Always, <laughs> always. It's invaluable. Hey guys, real quick, if you're enjoying this podcast, then you'll love our private members network, Foodact Plus. Every Tuesday morning, we send a curated newsletter highlighting a key food industry trend or opportunity in the market, along with actionable insights to help you successfully launch, grow, or invest in your next business. To find out more, head to foodact.global slash membership and use the code SECRETSAUCE, all in caps, for a discount of your first year membership. Thanks for listening, and let's get back to the podcast. And so Tarak ended up investing into you guys along with his friends. And what did that funding now allow you guys to do? At that point, I was 22. 
my co-founder as well. He then dropped out of university. Marco quit his job. And yeah, I mean, I jumped in full-time. We all immediately jumped in full-time. We were 22. I never had an interview, job interview in my life. And then, of course, we had to start higher people because we needed mm -hmm. support in a lot of areas. And Tarek gave us a very, very, very important advice at that point. He said, only hire working students because you're going to make mistakes and it's better to make mistakes with someone who's not working full time for you because, you, you know, you're not impacting this person's life that much. Mm. So we did that and it actually turned out to be super true. I mean, we had no idea. I was sitting there as a 22-year-old with no degree, no real education. And then on the other side of the table, there were people I should interview and evaluate and see if they are a great fit for a company. That was super tough, but it was, yeah, it was really interesting. And we learned so much in the first year, you know, hiring people. We actually had to let them go. It's like breaking up with someone. And it's even tougher when you like that person, but you just hired the wrong person for the job, you know? That's basically what it allowed us. So we had enough capital to hire, I think we hired seven or eight people, four of them. So this is also super important. I don't know how we did that one right, but four of the first people that worked for us and, and joined our team actually ended up becoming entrepreneurs themselves. Some of them are already funded. All the four of the startups are still alive and growing Uh, with employees. And that, of course, that makes us super, super proud. And it uh, proves that your first employees are very, very valuable for your direction, for your culture, for everything, because, you know, they're going to leave their mark on, on your company. So you should choose them very wisely. And I think the first employees are kind of the rock stars of the company mm -hmm. because it's super, super important. They will have a great impact on, on everything. You guys were quite infamous for the way that you typically recruited people. You were very upfront that the company may not exist in a few months down the line and that it's a very much a startup culture. What inspired you guys to make those very transparent job applications? And do you think they led to higher quality people applying in the end? A hundred percent. Just something we tried out, of course. No, we, we didn't know how the results going to look, who's going to apply, but we knew transparency And honesty always win, you know, and always attract the right person. If people know what to expect, we can only under promise and over deliver. Well, we learned very early on because it was the same for us is that we wanted meaning in our job. Meaning is something everyone searches for. And that's so important to for, for a lot of people and also for the right people for the job as early employees in every department, you know, and with any kind of skill. You want people that need a meaningful job in their life, you know. That's exactly what we sold them on. So we, we told them, mm -hmm. very transparent, as you said, that this is a very, very early startup. We just moved into our office. For two of us, it was the first full-time job. And we were still learning on the job, you know, and, and we didn't know if we we're going to survive uh, and for how long. And maybe you have to work very late hours, but you're going to learn a ton and you're going to build something great, you know, and you're going to make a difference. And they did. And retrospective, we, we are happy that we can say they did. They had a lot of takeaways for their own path, you know, in their own companies. And 
as you said, right, this is something that actually turned out to be great for us. And I would advise everyone to do it if they are, you know, super early, if they need people that can work without a solid structure, people that are, you know, very self-sufficient and can work on their own and don't need supervising all the time, because this is what you need in your early days. So, I mean, it was a lucky shot, I, I guess. Now it's easy to explain, but it just felt right. It just felt right back then that this is uh, how we need to communicate. And this, these are the people we want to attract. And today, eClever, you guys are in 100 locations across 70 cities. So you've had this massive expansion from where you were, uh, where you originally started to where you are now. How did you grow so quickly? And what were some of the key things behind your success it's definitely two things. Uh, I think very, very obvious is team. Let me start with, with the other important part is processes. So if you want to expand and if you have a business like ours, for example, I think the most famous uh, example for this kind of businesses is Uber because you have to expand and build clusters and build up big cities, you know, uh, then for example, all the e-scooter sharing is the same. You build a business model that works and then you duplicate it, you know, and do it again and again and again in different cities. And what is most important for that, and this is also for franchising a restaurant, for franchising whatever, you know, service in the industry, opening up new restaurants, is that you need a consistent quality. And to achieve that, you need processes. You need to have very, very solid processes to not fuck up your growth phase. And you have to be careful to not do it too fast and too early because it's very tempting. You know, it's very tempting to, of course, everyone wants to grow their business. Everyone wants to expand. Growth is actually life, of course, in nature, right? Everything that's growth, that is alive. But first you have to build a solid ground and that is processes. And for us, it really was the secret sauce that we started building the processes first, tested, tested again and again and again. And failed a lot before investing in hypergrowth. And then in end of 2017, early 2018, we hired a lot of people. We actually started our growth phase with only 10 or 15 people. Operating 20 cities with only 10 people in the, in the head office. That was an insane time, but we had the right people. We had the right processes. And then we hired more and more people and grew the business uh, in 2019, expanded to Switzerland, Austria, and um, the UK uh, super successfully. It was crazy. You know, we, of course, we still learned a lot. And what we learned growing internationally was that you really have to adjust your pitch, adjust your product. Of course, we, th we think globally, but we have to act locally. You know, I mean, you, you probably can uh, mm -hmm. relate and have a lot of stories to tell about the differences between living in the UK and, and then in Switzerland. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's basically the same when you sell a product, you know, you really have to adjust to the people, to your customers. You have to know your customers. You have to get to know the market. So that are the two main things that you have the right team that knows the markets. You know, when you expand to the UK, you really need natives. If you think you can speak English well, fine, but, but it's it's a very, very different ball game, you know, to advertise in British English, for example. Absolutely. Um, so that was super important for us and very valuable, these two things. So it's really uh, building up the processes, making yourself very efficient so that you're ready to scale and it's easy to do so. 
So you just have to add fuel to the flame. But what capital were you using to grow? Was it just your own revenue or did you get more funding during this period of time? I think this is very important to know. We actually built up cities to become profitable. For example, Hamburg, okay, or base or our home was the first city to become profitable. But even if the overall business and company was not profitable, we were very, very cautious and also consciously looking at every micro market, if the location is profitable or not, at what point it's going to be profitable. So we also got some cash flow out of profitable locations and cities to invest into new cities. And simultaneously, we raised some more money from our existing investors. So they were so happy with our development and with our growth and everything. And we're also happy customers, which always helps that they invested several times into our company so we could grow uh, and grow internationally. Because when we expanded to other countries, we, of course, we lost and burned some money. And you really need to have this money to burn, you know? not going to work the same way like expanding in your own country for example so this helped us as well absolutely today you guys are in 100 locations across 70 cities your success story out of germany but were there ever any times that you really faced any challenges or you thought crap this might not really work at all all the time all the time it never stops Never. So this is also something people have to be aware of when they start. It's always a challenge. You know, there's a great metaphor, um, a guy riding a lion. I don't know if you if you know the picture. Um, there's a guy riding a lion and uh, the guy on the lion is, uh, is an entrepreneur. And all the people around him say, wow, he's so brave. He's riding a lion. And the guy on the on the lion is just like, fuck. How do I get off this lion without getting eaten? You know, it's really perspective because from the outside, and especially when you get, you know, successful and you, you win some awards, you know, you start, uh, yeah, I don't know, like becoming um, objectively from the outside a success story. And of course, it feels really good and it's great. And especially when you start making some money and you can live off your company and, and, it's, and it's growing, etc., but it, the challenges, you know, they never stop. Never. You just learn how to handle challenges. You know, you learn to get really better at, at basically everything. And even if the challenges are way bigger today, they affect us less than when we started out, like the, in the first years, because you just become a better entrepreneur, you know. And with your experience, you know when it's time to be stressed, you know, when it's time to be worried, but most of the time being objective and just having a plan, you know, having a plan and, and structuring a plan and a path to go is way better than being emotionally or being worried or, you know, stressed out. So the challenges never stop, you know, look at it, at our situation today. This is like a black swan event. So something no one ever thought of could ever happen and we are all not prepared for this but you just have to live with it you know you have to find your path through it we just have to make the best out of it and this is something every entrepreneur will learn when growing and starting a company because if you don't learn it you're just gonna it's gonna ruin you 
because you think at some point you're gonna have the billionaire's life and and just uh, living at the beach and doing nothing. But if you really want to change the world, you know, and make a difference and grow your business, the challenge is never gonna stop. You just learn how to handle them. Absolutely. I think that leads us on to the current situation today. I mean, obviously with the coronavirus, restaurants are being hit pretty hard. There's some of them are temporarily closed. Some of them are, are permanently shut. What effect has this had on Eat Clever and how is a company handling the situation? Yeah, of course, it, it, it has effects as we are working with restaurants in different countries. Honestly, I have friends in the industry, uh, probably, you know, a lot of people who got hit worse. You know, so we always can be thankful that we are a takeaway business and not like a, a restaurant business. You know, you have to communicate, you have to communicate with your customers. I see a lot of brands doing a great job, you know, ensuring the customers uh, how they're handling their situation with the health checks. And then you have to adapt that more and more people are going to order from home. And you have to think about, of course, keep your drivers safe, you know, keep your employees in the kitchens the teams safe and, and also help the restaurants that are focused. For example, of course, we are working with restaurants from our side on takeaway, but these restaurants also had revenue stream from people coming in the restaurant, right? I mean, we, we didn't get hit like other companies that are purely in a restaurant or eating in business. Or I have, I have some friends that are fully focused on lunch orders where the revenue dropped to zero. And they have to invent a completely new business model. But yeah, I mean, again, it's just being adaptable to the environment. I think one of the most important things in crisis is always communication. Absolutely. So building on that, I mean, after five years of eClever, you stepped down as the managing director back in January 2020. So January of this year. What led you to make that decision? And what was it like to walk away from company that you had successfully helped to build? Well, that's a question I got asked a lot because uh, when you start in the early days, you're all together. You know, the founders, you spend a lot of time together. When you're building teams and departments and your team is growing, you have less of some time just to yourself, you know? And uh, what we do is we spend two or three days, typically of weekend, at the end of every year, just the three of us. And every year we talk about how the year went for us, what we expect for the next year and what we want for our life. You know, we reassure ourselves that this is what we want. This is also very important for every human being, not only for founders. And in the end of 2018, you know, we talked and I explained to them that after four years, you know, constantly traveling, I think I spent like 300 nights a year in hotels. Having some work-life balance is very important. You know, and I, I was just like, hey, guys, at one point I have to travel less and et cetera. And I'm not seeing myself as, as a manager of, a, of already like a scale up. And yeah, and then we, we just uh, built a plan because they understood, you know, my intentions and everything and took on responsibility and everything. And over the course of one year, so we planned this very well. Our investors were on board as well. Over the course of a year, I just delegated more and more of my tasks to, to other people in the team. And then it was really smooth. I, I trust my co-founders 100%. You always have to, you know, if not, something is wrong. And they did a great job, you know, and I was on the road all the time. And I thought like 2019 was hugely successful for me personally, you know. 
I was almost every day feeling so, you know, thankful for everything. And I was so happy. And I thought, okay, this is the perfect time to step down. Mm -hmm. And moving forward, what are you working on today? Will you launch another company in the future? Uh, are you taking some time off? What's next for you? So I decided to write a book. I always, you know, saw myself at some points writing a book because I love books. I read a lot. And I came up with an idea because, you know, when some time freed up for me, more and more of my friends who also run companies asked for my advice, you know, just on small things, on emails they were writing, on letters to their staff, on negotiation, because I'm a kind of obsessed with communication. Because I think communication is one of the most important success factors for every one of us. How to, um, you know, get things done, how to convince people, how to help people. Basically, everything is worked around communication. And I obsessively learned how to communicate and intensely, you know, researched a lot of behavioral psychology. You know, these people again and again, they came to me. For example, they sent me their email draft I worked an hour on it, sent it back, and they were stunned. You know, they were like, wow, you just worked an hour on this, and this is so much better. How is this possible? And then it clicked, and I thought, okay, what I could do now is use this lockdown time to write a book about everything I learned about communicating. Mm -hmm. When is the book expected to be released, and do you already have a working name? Yeah, so I actually set up a landing page. So maybe we can put it in the show notes so people can sign up. As soon as it's released, I'm negotiating with publishers. So my idea, I mean, like the book cover is super important. And the idea behind it is to make the book cover look like an email he received. So sender would be replacing author. And there would be sender Mohammed Shahin and subject the perfect email. And then like uh, maybe a subtitle, how to write kick-ass emails or how to write emails that get replied. And when researching, I found out that we receive 21 emails a day on average, you know, if you're working in a, an office. And, and that's insane because, you know, it means we are spending so much time on emails, writing and reading emails and I haven't seen a lot of content on learning about the task or the craft of, of, of writing emails. So for me, it's really a craft because you can actually learn it and it's, uh, it's not so difficult or complicated. So that's the idea. And uh, hopefully I'm going to publish it within two or three months. So I always have a tight schedule, but it's the first time for me. So uh, yeah, let's see. And after that, and after the pandemic, I'm definitely going to start a new company and I'm really excited about it because starting out is really exciting. And I see myself more as a founder than a manager. And yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. That's often the case with, with founders that once it gets to that stage of management, or operations, they get tired of it. They lose that drive that they had in the beginning. Is that what you found in some way? That's actually a good point. I totally agree on, on that. I see that with a lot of other founders. Yeah, you're, you're right. So I definitely didn't get bored. So my, my work was really intense. And I, I had a lot of kind of adventures and always saw the positive side of it. And I'm really thankful for everything. 
it, it was more of a manager position at some point, you know, because what, what your job becomes is making sure that your team has everything they need to execute. But basically your job is, you know, managing the company and the team and you're not really in the operations anymore. And this is great because a lot of startups don't even get to that stage that you have a working business model, you know, that is sustainable. And that's awesome. And I, I love that we've built that. And at the same time, I'm, yeah, as you said, I'm, I think I'm more of the person that loves the risk and yeah, and takes on the roller coaster ride of being an entrepreneur and building something new. I think that's where my strengths is. Absolutely. You're what, 28, 29 now? 27, I'm 27, yeah. 27, okay, well, you're 27 now. And in that time you built and scaled a successful company with eClever that scaled into a hundred different locations. Do you today feel a sense of accomplishment? And more importantly, what does your family think? Are they, do they feel proud of what you've achieved? Yeah, great question. Achievement, I don't know if achievement is the right word. A lot of times I feel like my life is unreal. And uh, I think that's super, super important to stay humble, to be very, very thankful for everything. Uh, I want to be, and, and I try to be thankful every day for what I'm allowed to have and the life I'm allowed to live. Because I know that, for example, if my parents would have decided to stay in Lebanon or in Syria, for example, my life probably would have turned out completely different. So that's, that's I think, very important to, to stay humble. And my family, uh, that's a funny story because my family, I don't know if you know the, the saying that your family and your friends are always the worst consultants and the worst to ask for advice. <laughs> and that's so true. My family hated what I did. They were so worried. And I, as I said in the beginning, they stopped supporting me financially. And even when we were like, honestly, like even when we turned around like millions in revenue, my dad still asked me if I'm going to go back to school <laughs> to, to get my degree. That was so insane for me. But my dad still wanted me to go back to, you know, you, and I was actually like hiring graduates all the time. And he wanted me to get back and get a degree. But of course, today they are super, super, super proud. And uh, it's still very difficult for them to, uh, you know, grasp like what I'm doing and, you know, why I decide this and that. But whenever they see something on TV or uh, online or in a magazine or a newspaper, they are always super proud. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's basically to my to my family. Well, Mohammed, that leads me to my last question. If someone wants to reach out to you for mentorship advice or just to know more about your journey, is that okay? And where can they reach you? Sure, through LinkedIn, and I'm definitely going to set up a website where people can reach out to me because uh, now, you know, as I'm structuring my ventures and everything, I kind of need a personal website. But for now, probably the best way is through LinkedIn. What's the main thing people should reach out to you about? Is there something you're specifically looking for right now or projects that you're excited to consult or mentor or maybe even invest into? Yeah, so it's very, very important for my journey and for my success was always mentorship. And people I looked up to and people who helped me without getting anything in return, at least not, not back then. And I still have uh, mentors, you know, and I think uh, we will never stop learn. And uh, mentors 
are one of the best ways to learn very fast. Yeah, when we have like a clear personality to look up to, it's easier for us to find, you know, a path or who we want to be within five or 10 years. So I always love to give back. And yeah, I'm really excited about two topics right now is uh, real estate and like housing and everything and how this is going to change in the future. But this is just a hobby. I think uh, having a hobby is also very important. And the other thing I'm excited about and would love to get more into is actually water, the future of clear drinking water and how the usage of water is going to change because we have a lot of regions in the world that are already water stressed and that experience some water scarcity. These are two topics I'm really excited about. Of course, people are very early on looking for initial capital or anything. I'm always either for myself or from others or for my network, I'm happy to help because again, so many people helped me and so many people supported me without getting anything in return. And I think we just have to pay this forward, you know? Thanks for tuning in to The Secret Sauce by Foodhack. If you enjoyed it, please give us a quick review on Apple Podcasts or share this with a friend. To find out more about Foodhack's global community of food entrepreneurs or to sponsor a future episode, head to foodhack.global slash podcast. Write to me at armin at foodhack.ch. Thanks for listening. Until next time, stay hungry. Thank you.